It is so encouraging to me to have you all come up and read the scripture. There, if, if you're not aware, there's a group of people memorizing the entire book of Philippians with us. And we're asking you to join us in doing that and maybe even take the brave step to come up and read that text, recite that text for us to help us proclaim this truth. Jake and I and occasionally others come up to preach it and explain it, but the word itself is the power and we want to equip all of you to do that. So I'm delighted to join with all of you in that proclamation. Before we begin... Let's ask that God would help us delight in his good work. Oh, Father, it's amazing that we can lift our empty hands like little children to you and say, help us, help us, Dad. And you look down on us and delight in us, not because of anything we do, but because of what Christ has done, your perfect, beloved, only Son. You have made us children in him. And now you are transforming our hearts so that we can delight in him when we hear his word proclaimed. And I pray you would do that right now. Help us in every way, in every circumstance, in every trial to rejoice in our Savior being proclaimed through the ends of the earth. Amen. So we've been preaching through the book of Philippians. We just began a few weeks ago. And the goal of us choosing this book is to help us unify as brothers and sisters, as partners in the gospel. I preached a couple weeks ago that the theme of the book of Philippians is joyful gospel partnership. And what better time do we need that encouragement than right now when there's so many things to divide over? We need to be reminded of this one important thing, the gospel and how we are made partners in that. And if you want to grow in your joy and your contentment and, and your assurance of your own salvation, you're going to find that by plugging in with a local church and getting to know people on an intimate level so you can see Jesus is working there and there and there and there. So that as Jake taught us last week, when difficulty comes as it was promised, we can still see our Savior at work. Actually, it's through these dark moments that we can see him more clearly. And today we find ourselves in some really challenging times. I recently spoke with an older gentleman, brother among us, who's been in the church for longer than some of you have been alive. And he was telling me that what we are going through as churches right now is the most significant challenge he has seen in his lifetime. We've got some difficult things to work through. Churches are going through a lot right now because of circumstances surrounding COVID and the government response to that and racial tensions. And of course, election season always makes it more challenging. Churches are falling apart. Research that I've read recently suggests that in the coming months, one out of five churches is going to close. 20% of the churches in this country are going to close down. One third, researchers have found, one third of Christians have begun looking around at other churches. Maybe online, they're just checking out some others. And a whole other third of Christians has just stopped connecting with church in any way altogether. More research has said that the majority of pastors 
have considered in the last six months quitting because they are exhausted and tired of all of these challenges and all the fighting. They just, things aren't looking good for the church. Our voice is far less respected in the cultural conversation than it was even 10 years ago. Media placing the blame on churches for spreading viruses and bad ideas. These things that Christians have been commanded to do for 2,000 years, gather together, sing together, embrace one another, welcome each other into our homes, they're considered dangerous. And now it's breaking churches up. Some churches are being shut down. Some Christians are going to jail, being arrested. Some are just staying home because... They're confused and they're not sure what they're supposed to be doing right now. Others feel it's just best to follow all the protocol. Makes them more able to reach their neighbors. And Christians are just at odds with how to deal with these all of these things. Back and forth. Even though Jesus told us that the world wouldn't ever like us. That his message was going to confront the culture. We all disagree on how it should do that. And... Sadly, as we debate these things, we begin to look more like the world as we do it. We take the world's idea and we add some some biblical language to it and then use that to attack someone on the other side. And then we say, well, yeah, you're wrong. And we throw the lobs back and we've turned against ourselves, joining arms with the world. It's quite discouraging and damaging to our witness. But it doesn't have to be. As we see in our text, Paul has a better way in mind. Remember that Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to join believers together in joyful gospel partnership. Things aren't just crazy now. They've been crazy throughout church history. Even in Philippi, as soon as the gospel seed was planted, it started uprooting all kinds of things. Everywhere the gospel has taken root. It's made life more difficult for Christians. People lose friends and family. They lose their lives. They lose their jobs. It's exciting at first. It might seem worth it. But then after a while, the excitement wears off and you feel like maybe this this uh, gospel witness isn't having the effect we think it should. And then Christians divide over the best way to respond when that happens. So Paul is writing this letter to change their perspective, to flip things around on their head, to say, instead of getting upset, about all that's going on, let's look at it a different way. Let's see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to share the gospel where this church is seeing failure everywhere. Paul says, look at it again. I see amazing gospel opportunity. I'm seeing wonderful gospel fruit. And Paul wants to help us have that same attitude. In every circumstance, he wants us to rejoice in Christ proclaimed. In every way, rejoice in Christ proclaimed. Paul had told the Corinthians, I have determined to know nothing among you except one thing, Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That's my only message. And now here in Philippians, he's expanding that. That's not only the only thing that he's going to talk about, that's the only thing he's going to get excited about coming from the mouths of others as well. He he will proclaim Christ, and he's determined to praise nothing but Christ in God's people. And he's going to do that no matter how good the people do it. 
As we see in our text, in verses 15 to 17, we see these two kinds of Christians. We have sincere gospel partners and also selfish gospel preachers. And it's easy to see how you could just kind of start praising one and enjoying the other and pushing or that one and pushing the other away. But Paul has one response. He has joyful gospel confidence in verse 18. As long as he hears Jesus, as long as he hears the gospel, Jesus died and rose from the dead. He's just going to put his hands up and rejoice. So let's see how we can begin doing the same thing as well. We'll look at these sincere gospel partners first in verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others Don't forget these guys, others from goodwill. The latter, those others, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So in Jake's text last week, in verses 12 to 14, Paul is shifting this mindset that this joyful gospel partnership can actually flourish in difficult circumstances. He's taking this negative turn of events, Paul going to jail and saying, actually, this has been for the better. God is doing amazing work. Not only are people now in jail coming to Christ, but people who have replaced me are becoming more bold to proclaim this truth. What encouraging news. How can Paul not be excited? But it's not all perfect. Some are doing it out of goodwill, but others are doing it with false motives. Let's look at those sincere partners first. He says they're doing it out of goodwill. The word for goodwill means well-pleased. It's the same word that God the Father uses for the Son at his baptism. And in the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well-pleased. Meaning, I know this guy. I like this guy a lot. We're actually partners in this mission and everything he does pleases me. That's how the father feels about the son. And that same love, that same affection is working out through these sincere gospel partners towards Paul. Verse 16 says it's just an overflow of love. They love Paul. They love Paul's Jesus. And they will follow Paul wherever he heads towards Jesus, even if it means into jail. These are the ones that Paul just delights in throughout the letter. They've prayed for him. They've taken up an offering for him. They visited him in prison. They're, they're imitating his gospel preaching. These are, in more modern context, these are the people, the members of a church that just are so encouraging. They show up early to set up chairs every week. They stay late after everyone else leaves to clean up the last bit of trash. They're the ones who come up and tell you after the sermon, wow, that was really challenging and I'm really encouraged to go represent Jesus more. Or if you're in a small group, they're like, oh, I'm just so dedicated to that because you are my brothers and sisters that encourage me every week. It's easy to be endeared to these types of people because they make this partnership a delight. And these people do it because... They want to encourage you to keep going. Stay faithful. This is a hard journey. I don't want you to get burned out. And Paul says they do it because they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That that means not that he's in jail because he preached the gospel. The word for here means unto the defense of the gospel. He's in jail so that he will preach the gospel. 
These believers, these sincere partners, trust in God's sovereignty, His absolute control over every detail of life. They know that even though it's the Romans that arrested Paul and the Romans that put the shackles on him and the Romans that are guarding the place to keep him in there, it's God behind it doing the whole thing. God had people in this Roman court and prison system that he wanted to save. And so he used injustice. He used something that was terribly unjust, arresting Paul for no good reason and putting him in jail so that he could preach the gospel to them. Both Paul and these sincere partners knew God's purposes, and they were just eager to make the best of this situation, to make the glory of Christ shine in the darkness. It's so important to have these gospel partners close to us, because there are many times when you can't see, and you're not sure, maybe maybe this is foolish, and those brothers and sisters, like many of you have been to me and to one another, are always reminding you, God's victory is just around the corner. It might look bleak. You might not be able to see it. I can see him. Hang in there. Because we know with certainty. You can see a little bit of a difference in Greek between these sincere people. They know that God is working. And the others says they they think They suppose they can afflict Paul. They're not sure. They don't quite have that certainty. These people know that Paul is here for the defense of the gospel. And I know that all of you have been put in your neighborhoods, in your jobs, in your families for the proclamation of the gospel. And so I am determined to stand here and encourage you to keep on talking about Jesus there. But... It's true that you are put in those situations by the sovereign hand of God, even if you don't have encouraging partners around you. As Paul notes in verse 17, calling attention to these selfish preachers. So he said at the beginning, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then skip to 17. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. These are some really frustrating people. These are the ones that capture all of our attention. I don't know what percentage of of these, it doesn't really indicate how many of them were really encouraging and how many of them were really discouraging. I want to think that there were more encouragers in this church because of how overwhelmingly positive Paul is. But even if there's just one, one really discouraging person, that is so frustrating. I've I've felt this weight in ministry when I know 99 out of 100 people are just flourishing with the gospel and taking it and proclaiming it in their own neighborhoods and jobs and, and, and encouraging others and building them up and growing and discipling others. And then you get that one person who's just a stick in the mud. They're critical. They complain. They always tell you what you're not doing right. They distract you from all the good that God is doing around you. Paul had to tell Pastor Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, this in 2 Timothy 1. Don't focus so much on guys like Hermogenes and Philetus who have abandoned us. Yeah, that's really frustrating. But look look at a guy like Onesiphorus. He's always there, always serving, always available, always encouraging. He doesn't do it for the accolades. Hardly anyone even knows his name, but there he is, 
always helping out. At every turn, Paul has faced these trials, but he refuses to lose sight of Jesus. Look at some of these people that he's dealing with. He says they preach out of envy and rivalry, selfish ambition, supposing that they can afflict Paul. They're trying to cause Paul anguish in their preaching. That sounds terrible. Who are these guys? Paul uses these types of descriptions most often for false teachers in other letters. People who change the gospel, who deny the gospel, who add to the gospel. Remember that Paul's focus is laser sighted on the gospel. He has harsh words for people who mess with that. But it's not clear here that he's got those same people in mind because he's certain these guys are preaching the gospel. It's the true gospel of Jesus' death and his resurrection. The only problem is their motives. What's on the inside? Envy and rivalry suggest that they're doing it in some kind of competition, like they think they're working against Paul. They're striving to build a bigger ministry or they were jealous that Paul had all the people following him and maybe now that he's in jail, those people will come and follow us. Maybe they think that Paul's just been doing it wrong, that they could have a lot more people if he weren't so brash or if he weren't so harsh and and excited He weren't so dogmatic. They're going to show up and say, look, this is the right way to do it. Paul, you're in jail because, not because of Jesus. We say this today. That's not persecution because they're not, they're not saying stop teaching about Jesus. You're, you're being persecuted because you're expecting these things or doing that. And they could be saying that to Paul. Hey, Paul, you know, in Ephesus, you didn't really go to jail because of Jesus. You went to jail because you upset the local economy. And remember when you were in Philippi, you didn't get arrested because you were preaching about Jesus. You got arrested because you upset the entertainment system there. Those those little girls were really important for our fortune-telling business. That's why you're going to jail, not because of Jesus. See, they're just nitpicking over all these things, and we struggle with this same attitude. Pastors like to get together. I hung out with a bunch of pastors yesterday at a, at a meeting uh, encouraging one another. And too often when pastors get together, well, how big is your church? Oh, my church is this big. Oh, our church is only this big. Like it's some kind of competition. And then you start to defend yourself. Well, the only reason your church is big is because uh, you're compromising and you're, you're not focusing on important things. And, or the only reason your church is small is because you're a jerk and you're really unkind. We all struggle with this type of stuff. We have preferences for how church should be. And then we look down at other people in other churches who aren't doing it the right way. We think there's a right way to do evangelism, to engage with our neighbors, and anyone who doesn't do it that way is wrong. We question motives. It devolves into division. The exact thing Paul's trying to prevent. It's been rough for us the church in America over the last few months. Battles over the pandemic, over racial issues, over politics. Christians are now fighting against each other. But remember, we're talking about Christians. People who get the gospel right. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. They get it right, even if they get a bunch of other things wrong. If you think about it, we all get things wrong, right? Right? Even Paul admitted that. None of us have it figured out yet. In chapter 3, 
He'll say, I haven't arrived at perfection yet. None of us have. He's trying to tell us it's a marvel that God has used any of us to talk about Jesus. Don't point your finger at that other guy doing it wrong because you're probably doing it wrong in some way too. This is what's amazing about the gospel. God's not calling for perfect witnesses, perfect speakers. He doesn't recruit the wise and the skilled to gospel partnership. He's telling us that even though we all are going to get things wrong, God is still using us. It's not the preacher that makes the gospel effective. It's the gospel that makes the preacher effective. It's not the your testimony that makes the gospel effective. It's the gospel that makes your testimony effective. That is Paul's confidence. His joyful gospel confidence that we see in verse 18. He says, what then? I got people that are doing it out of goodwill and people that are trying to tear me down. What am I supposed to do about it? Puts his hands up and says, I don't care. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. This is incredible. How can he be so content? How can he be okay with people trying to discredit his ministry? What is he going to do to fix all of these broken people? He says, in every way, I'll rejoice in Jesus. Are they talking about Jesus? Yes. Then I rejoice. Are they tearing Paul down while they talk about Jesus? Yeah. So Paul's ministry was about Jesus, not about building himself up. Less of me, more of him. That's exactly what's happening. So I'll rejoice. You ever heard the phrase, there's no such thing as bad publicity? It's in, in marketing, this idea that if people are in the news, they're talking about you and saying how terrible you are, you can say, well, at least they're talking about me. At least they're talking about my product and more people are going to hear about it and certainly more people will buy it then. And I didn't even have to pay for it. And so here's Paul. A guy from hundreds of miles away from a small town where he was taught about a Jewish God that nobody else cared about. And people everywhere are talking about his Jesus. They don't have all the details right, but they talk about Jesus is everywhere. Nobody knew who Jesus was months and years before. Nobody would have cared to hear about a Jewish carpenter who became a teacher who claimed to be king who died on a cross. That kind of stuff happens all the time. Who cares? Nobody would have listened to a message about a Jewish savior from a Jewish preacher. Yet now news of this man is the talk of every town in the Roman Empire. <laughs> How can we not rejoice in that? Well, but these people need training. How are they going to mature in their faith? Paul says, by pointing them more to Jesus, by talking more about Jesus. Remember a couple of weeks ago when my message said, if you want to grow in your love for one another, you do that by looking to Jesus in each other. And this is just what Paul's doing, grabbing a hold of that little thread and pulling it out more and more. I want to hear more of that. Yeah, you get all these other things wrong, but I want this one right here. That is the power of the gospel. We don't need to argue people into our position. We just need to show them how our position points to Jesus most often, most clearly, and produces the most Christ-centered joy. John Piper says from, from this text that the gospel has self-authenticating power. 
It's going to do its work. It's going to draw people closer to truth. It doesn't need us to prop it up. Oh, the gospel's falling. We better get it back up. It doesn't need us to staple gospel fruit to the tree. It can do its own fruit bearing. It doesn't need us to clean dirt off if it touches some dirty people. Preach the gospel. It will do its work. He's not endorsing bad teaching. That's why he wrote 13 letters of the New Testament to confront bad teaching that messes with the gospel and guides us towards greater faithfulness. And he's going to confront some of that in the coming chapters. But his heart is satisfied simply to hear Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. Jesus died for sinners. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and He's pouring out His Holy Spirit on all who trust in Him. If the Holy Spirit is in you, in a sense, I can kick back and trust that you're going to get there. I don't need to chase after you. And Paul knows that. He knows that the Gospel doesn't just save us from our sins, but it equips us and it sends us and it makes us useful. Just as Paul's imprisonment, he said, really served to advance the gospel. So has the word going forth out of difficult preachers. Weak preachers also serve to advance the gospel. The glory of Christ always shines the best against a dark backdrop. And that's true whether you're walking with Jesus through a difficult circumstance. And that's also true if it's your weak, messed up sharing the gospel. Jesus will shine the brightest because it's in the darkness that the gospel becomes most clear, that it's most obvious that it's God doing the work. Paul is confident that the gospel will work. Jesus died and rose from the dead. And when he hears that, it makes his heart sing. So how do we have that same attitude? We can memorize Philippians. I encourage you to keep doing that. I'd love to hear it from you. But today I want to leave you with two things that Paul models for us in his engagement with these Philippians. First, watch where you get your news. And then second, watch what you let come out of your mouth. Watch where you get your news. If you're getting your news from Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you're being fed a stream of information that will lead you down a wrong path. If you get your news from CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever your favorite internet news magazine is, or even, even the Mayo Clinic News Network. You're getting incomplete information. You are missing the gospel that Jesus died and rose from the dead. This is the most important thing. If, if all these other things are the majority of your news intake, It's going to lead your heart away from gospel confidence. God's word tells us that he has overcome the world. God promises that he is filling the earth with his glory. He guarantees that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and it will save his people. This is happening. Where are you going to hear about it? We go to the word and we go to his people. That's our news network. The local church. Talk to one another. Hear about how amazing God is working through your brothers and sisters. Connect with other churches around the country, around the world, and hear the amazing things that God is doing. And 
that will fill you with confidence that the gospel is bearing fruit. But not only do we need to watch what we let in, we must be careful what we let out then. Watch what you let out of your mouth. Paul determined, he determined, said this is the only thing, and he disciplined himself. I will only talk about Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. He wanted them to know that this is his only hope. This is his only joy. This is the only thing that gets him excited and the only thing that gets him upset if anyone touches it. And he wants them to know that the only thing that will get him excited when he listens is when they talk about that. Everything revolves around that truth. His one goal is to make Jesus known. The words he lets out of his mouth are the gospel and praise of others who are proclaiming the gospel. Sadly, right now, Christians like to talk about almost everything but the gospel. We use a lot of biblical language, loving your neighbor, help serving the poor, bringing justice for the oppressed, submitting to government. All of these good things that were given to us to point us to Jesus, to lead us to the gospel. They must all be ways for us to get to the message of repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. We all struggle with taming our tongues. So what happens when you're scrolling through your news feed or watching the news and someone says something? What's going on in your heart? So many times for me, it's, I need to, I need to post that on Facebook. I need to comment on that and correct him. And the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of me and says, no, you don't. Get off of there. Your message is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Even if we disagree, if someone is taking an opportunity to talk about Jesus, let us rejoice in that, assuming that they are. Paul is happy to claim anyone as a partner who talked about Jesus a lot. Jesus crucified, risen from the dead, even if they said or did dumb things. Because he trusted the gospel will do its work. And you think those Christians who are suing the government or getting arrested for not wearing masks are being foolish? Maybe they are. But they're sure talking about Jesus a lot, aren't they? And in that we rejoice. Do you think those people who are working long hours at the clinic and or they have a sick or vulnerable grandparent and they wear masks everywhere they go, even when they drive in their car, you think they're really silly? Maybe they are. Who cares as long as they're talking about Jesus a lot with those people, using it as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We must be gospel people. Our greatest concern is a gospel. Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. That's why gathering is so important that we can hear. You're not an enemy. You're a partner. I need you. I see the gospel working in you. I see Jesus working out his Great salvation in you too. I trust that even when you say something silly on Facebook, that God will work in that too. We must be gospel people because there is something far greater at stake. Far greater than a healthy, prosperous America. You think losing your job or losing your freedoms is bad, but losing your soul You think injustice in this country is awful. God's justice against sin is going to be much more terrible. You think it will be torture having Trump or Biden as your president for four years. It's nothing compared to facing death in your sin. 
If you think people dying of COVID is tragic, millions more are dying in their sins. We must be gospel people. We can't afford to debate and divide over anything else. So let us be partners in rejoicing in Christ crucified, risen from the dead in every circumstance so God can show off his amazing gospel power. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these gospel partners. I hear amazing things happening in their lives. I get to walk through an ICU department to say hi to one of our members. And that sparked a gospel conversation for her. We get hear about another member sharing the gospel and praying with patience so much that management is now aware of it. And we rejoice in that. God, we got to hear as we tried to share the gospel with somebody that some member of this church beat us to that person. They said, ah, I heard about you and your church from another person. God, I am so delighted in these gospel partners because they are making Jesus known in this city. And I'm thankful that we get to gather together and just share that delight that we our gospel partners saved by grace and that you would use us even in our foolishness. Thank you, God, for that amazing work. Send us out of here confident that the gospel will bear fruit for the glory of our King. Amen.